Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well this morning. We are forging right ahead in Mark as we look at Jesus, as we look at the way of the king, which is the way of the disciple, and the way of the king is the way of the cross. And so we follow Jesus. Um, not only do we follow him to the cross, dying to ourselves, dying to sin, but we follow him in his resurrection, being made new. We follow him uh, in his ascension. We will follow him uh, and be glorified. We will be uh, ultimately saved from the presence and the power that sin has in our lives. And so uh, this morning what we're going to do is actually follow Jesus into the word uh, and see see what he has for us this morning. And we're going to continue in Mark. Uh, and if, if you were here last week, uh, I'm sure as I was, you were, you were blessed by the word that, that Brad um, gave to us from the Lord. Uh, and if you remember the story, Jesus decides that he's going to cross uh, with his disciples uh, the sea, Galilee, and, and they enter on and Jesus and the disciples are on a boat and there are boats going and as they cross the sea a great storm occurs and and it's such a storm that the disciples four of whom are fishermen uh, who who worked the sea who have been surely in storms before uh, th- they're they're terrified uh, they're, they're scared to death, literally. They, they believe they're at the point of death, and Jesus is on the boat sleeping. And so they wake him and say, Jesus, don't you care that we're dying, we're perishing? And Jesus wakes, and he rebukes the wind, right? He rebukes the storm. Peace, be still. And it stops. It, it, it's still. It's peaceful. And for about a moment, the disciples are able to Rest in the fact that Jesus has saved them from imminent death. But then a greater weight begins to sink in. And fear begins to creep into their heart of a different kind. They're astonished and they say to each other, Who is this man? Who is this man? And I would, I would say to you that there's, there's no greater question, no more important question for you to wrestle with than that very question. Who is that man, Jesus? I, I love to talk with unbelievers, especially atheists and agnostics. I just, it's great conversation, um, and, and interesting to consider all of the philosophical underpinnings, both of belief and, and unbelief, as it were, or uh, I think more appropriately, belief in nothingness. Um, but it, it's great to have those conversations. It's great to consider the things of faith, the things of politics. I had to take a personality test, <clears throat> and um, it, one I'd never even seen before. Don't ask me what it was called. I'm that observant. Uh, But 
it, it, would, it asked a lot of questions, and when it assessed my personality type, it rightly uh, assumed that one of the things that I would like to do, that I like to do, is to talk about things like theology, politics, and sports, which is interesting to me that it lumps those three together, uh, but not really, because if you listen to sports talk radio at all, um, all you have to do is substitute words like Dallas Cowboys or LeBron James and enter in Barack Obama or Republicans, and you've got political talk radio. So the way that people talk about these themes is it's remarkably similar, and people like to debate and alike ideas, and I find myself uh, often in this realm, and so I find myself arguing about certain things like, is it reasonable to believe that there is a God, or is it reasonable to believe that that the right of an unborn child to live supersedes the right of a woman to choose, right? And so we have these conversations, and, and people will say, you know, well, what does the Bible say about this, and how can you believe that that's so antiquated and so outdated? And sometimes I get caught up in that, and I want to argue those points. But here's the truth, is that none, those questions don't matter as much as this question. Who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Because if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the son of God, God in flesh, who lived a perfect life, the life we couldn't, that died the death we deserved on the cross, that was dead, really and actually dead for three days, and that God in his power raised from the dead, triumphant over sin and death itself, and that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he's going to come back, and one day he will get all the glory. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If, if you deny that, then of course we're going to disagree on these topics. If that's not true, if you don't, if you aren't going to wrestle with that. There's, there's no point in arguing these things. But if you will for a second allow that, believe that, affirm that Jesus is who he says he is, then that changes everything. Because if there was a child born in Bethlehem to a virgin who was God and man, and if he died and he rose again, and he is Lord, then you necessarily must be subject to him. And now all of a sudden, the question is not, is this reasonable? Is this something that I can or can't do? Is it in vogue? The question is, how can I deny the one who has been raised in power, who's Lord of everything? And so if you're in that place, if you're working through, well, how can I, this seems antiquated. How can people say this is, what I want you to do is to explore with me this morning the question that was asked at the end of the last chapter. And, and that story connects with the three stories that we're looking at this morning. I want you to explore with me that question. Who is this man, Jesus? And if you are a believer, I want you to be reminded again of who this man that we serve is, who Jesus is. 
The sermon this morning is called The Power of Jesus. It could have been called The Authority of Jesus, The Lordship of Jesus, Jesus Exclamation Point. Right? We're looking at him. And so as we dive into that, as we look at these three stories, really two stories, you'll see. Uh, Allow your hearts to be open to receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Let's, let's pray. God, you are good. We love you. We want to see you exalted through your word. Be with us this morning. Soften our hearts. Let us see Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 5. This is, we're, we're doing the whole chapter. Typically we stand up. We're not going to do that this morning. Uh, We're just going to begin. So we're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. And so remember now, Jesus has just come. The storm, the the story ends. Uh, Well, the chapter ends. The story doesn't really end. And the chapters are kind of arbitrarily placed um, for the purpose of memorization and and reference. So um, the story We left the story off, and Jesus and the disciples are sitting in the boats. The disciples are marveling in awe of Jesus. They're questioning who is this man who calms even the winds and the seas. They they obey him. And so now we pick it up, chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see uh, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, 
the man who had, possess, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I don't know how many of you uh, watched or will watch again whenever they relaunch it, uh, 24. Um, but 24 was, I, I saw the first season. It was a pretty good show. <clears throat> Some of you are like, pretty good. It's the greatest show that's ever been. I know people are passionate about it. Um, but it was a good show. The difficult part, obviously, was that if you don't know what 24 is for some reason, uh, it the show takes place over the course of a day, and each hour segment is in real time to that day. It's an hour of that day, and it just follows the actions of this agent, Jack Bauer, who does amazing things and saves the day. And, and you watch it, and it's action-packed, and it's suspenseful. And if you had the good fortune of watching it on Netflix, you just literally could sit there and eat up hours and hours of your life and make the horrible life decision at 3 in the morning to start another one, right? You could just keep going and going and going. Some of you are laughing because you know that could happen. Some of you are laughing because that's you, right? But you watch it, and, and I watch it, and I'm in the suspense, but then there are these moments where it's like, I've had bad days, right? Like, we've all had bad days. I've had bad weeks, and my bad week has never contained as much action, and even Friday Night Lights, which is another show that, that our, my, Melissa, my wife, and I watch, it's over the course of a week, usually each episode, and you're just thinking, how does this happen in a week? How does, how does this happen in a shift at a hospital, right? Like, this doesn't make sense. Um, but here, here the disciples are, and not even a day earlier, they were in the sea, and a storm comes, and they're going to die. And they wake up, Jesus like, hey, you want to be sad that we're dying together with us? And Jesus, peace, be still, and the storm stops, right? That's enough. That's, that's a whole series right there. Who needs more than that? Well, they step off the boat, literally off the boat. And brr, a man comes out of tombs, and he's filled with demons. This is one day. This is a lot. Right? This is a lot. And so this man comes. And he's filled with demons, and, and we know at least a few details about this, this man. Uh, number one, he hasn't just been possessed this very day. It's been a while that he's been possessed with demons. And likely the progression was that as he was possessed, he began to act 
out in ways that were unnatural, and people began to notice it and see it, and they began to try and help this man, and eventually it was realized that we can't help this man, he's a danger, and so they tried to bind and shackle him, and then when they bound and shackled him, he just broke out of the chains. Now, there were not asylums in those days. There weren't places that you could send someone like that. And so eventually what happens in the course of this man's life is that he's exiled from his home, from his city, and he's forced to live out in the tombs where everybody's already dead, and so he can't hurt anyone. Not only that, you know, it it doesn't tell us why, and so um, what, what I'm about to say is really just kind of my, my thoughts and speculation on it. It's said that he is, he cries out daily and he cuts himself with stones. Why does he do that? There's probably one of two reasons. One reason may just be that this is an act of the possession, him, him being possessed, right? Uh, another thing, and, and this one is particularly um, compelling to me, is, is that he's trying to get the demons out, Right? Like people would do that when people were sick. You know, this isn't that far in our past. They try and bleed the sickness out. He, he knows that something is wrong, and so he's cutting himself, trying to relieve himself of this oppression, trying to relieve himself of this possession. And so he's, he's trying to get rid of the demons, and he's cutting himself. We don't know. Either way, he is hurting himself. He's a danger to himself. He's a danger to the community. And so now he's all alone except being possessed by this demon. These demons in tombs. He's now forced to live among the dead. And he's out of his right mind. Right? He's naked. And everyone knows about him. And he sees Jesus. And he runs to him as Jesus comes to the boat. Before we go much further, I know that there are some things about this passage that could preoccupy your mind. And so I'm just going to try and uh, briefly address a few questions because the focus of this story is actually not the demon-possessed man, but it's Jesus. However, because... The demon-possessed man is also a prominent character in this story. Uh, it can lead to some questions about the demonic and about demon possession. And so I just, I just want to maybe address a couple of those things first and foremost. Number one, uh, we believe wholeheartedly in spiritual warfare. This is not just a story that's meant to be an analogy. This is rooted in history. There's a man who is possessed. There are people who are possessed. Spiritual warfare is real. Demons... Angels, they're real. They can possess people. However, um, through studying Scripture, through reading those who studied Scripture, I can say with great confidence that if you are a believer, if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then you cannot be possessed. Does that mean that you are immune to Spiritual warfare and attacks? Absolutely not. 
The Bible is clear that there's spiritual warfare, even in the life of believers. But if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you cannot be possessed. The last thing that I want to say is this, that the overwhelming focus of the New Testament is not on demon possession or um, evil spirits that are working themselves in you, uh, it's not on demon possession, but it's rather on the individual's response to the work of Jesus in obedience and rejecting sin in your life. And so here's what I mean by that. I'll give you just a few examples. When there is disunity in the church, the command is not to speak against or cast out the spirit of disunity, but rather to think of yourself in the proper context. Don't think of yourself as highly as you do, but where you ought to, think of others greater than you and be unified. When there's incest in the church, 1 Corinthians 5, right? When there's incest, Paul doesn't say, cast out this spirit of incest or immorality. He says, discipline the man until he repents, and if he won't, send him out of the church. Right? When, when, when the church, when the members are suing each other over very petty things, he doesn't Speak against the spirit of litigation. He tells them, stop doing this. Right? Um, and, and so if you're l- looking to maybe a greater resource for that, Wayne Grudem does a great job in his systematic theology of unpacking that. Um, but the point is this. The spiritual realm is real. There are people who can be possessed. It's not something to mess around with. Right? We get all these stories. Remember in Acts, this is a great story of men who go to cast out demons and, and they, they invoke the name of Jesus and Peter and the demons are like, hey, Peter, I know Jesus, or Jesus, I know Peter, I've heard of, but I don't know who you are. And then the demons beat him up and kick him outside of the house naked, right? Like that now is the gold standard. Like that is what it means to get beat up. Right? Like, I've seen a lot of people. I watched boxing growing up. I saw Mike Tyson handle a lot of people. But he never punched the clothes off them. Right? So now we have a new standard by which we measure how badly you got beat down. Right? They got beat naked. Right? So demons, they're real. They're more powerful than we are in our flesh. However, we have the spirit of God in us. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. And as we're going to see here, there is one greater even than the demons. So, so now let's come back to this story. This man sees Jesus. These demons see Jesus, and they run to him. And they rightly identify who he is. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Leave, leave us alone. And they're saying that because as Jesus comes to the shore, he sees the man, he identifies his problem, and he's already saying, get out of him. Demons, get out of him. And so they approach him, and they're pleading with him, right? Now, right away, if you're with him, this should be odd to you because these demons feel the need to ask permission of Jesus to stay where they are. But Jesus won't do it because he cares for the man. And he asks the demon, what is your name? But then we find out it's not just one. It's so many that they bear the name Legion. 
2,000 pigs worth, (laughs) as we'll see later. And so Jesus is casting them out, and and in a last-ditch effort, the demons say, send us into those pigs. And he does. Jesus gives them permission to go to the pigs. So I I don't know what the demons were thinking. I don't know how demons think. Um, But certainly their assumption is not that the pigs are then just going to plummet themselves into the sea and drown. Uh, But they do. And so Jesus heals this man, and immediately his senses are returned to him. And we know this because the herdsman goes to the town to tell people what's happened. Uh, I think partially for two reasons. Partially because he's seen a demon-possessed man healed, and partially because 2,000 pigs of his have just run into the sea. That's costly. That's his whole trade. And Jesus comes in, and he says, my child is more important than your pigs. And the unclean spirits go into the unclean pigs, and they run to the sea. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but there is one point of this story that I want to get to so that we can move on to the next ones. Uh, the people come, and they see what Jesus has done. All right? Hey, this guy used to have 2,000 pigs. I don't see 2,000 pigs. They must be in the sea just like he told me. Hey, there's that demon-possessed man. I remember trying to subdue him. We couldn't do it. He was possessed forever. He's usually naked, runny, roundy guy. He's not naked anymore. He's stopped with this. Not Not only is he no longer possessed, he's in his right mind, and he's he's calm. He's been restored. And the response is baffling. I I, I do think it would have been my response, but I I don't like to say it. I like to say it. I'd have been like, yeah, Jesus, let, let me go with you. But what's their response? Their response is, please, depart from us. Get out of here. They're scared. Just like the disciples were scared when he calmed the storms, they're scared because he's saved this man. He, he demonstrated that even the demons have to listen to him. He has authority and power over the demons. They're scared. It's costly. <laughs> so they say, leave us. We, we don't want you around here anymore. Because they recognize the power. But then there's this man, right? And he's been healed. He's been saved. He's been re- relieved of these demons. And he runs back to Jesus and said, okay, they can send you off, but I'm, I'm with you. And this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, everyone has abandoned him. He was possessed by demons. He could do nothing for himself. No one could do anything for him. He was beyond hope, beyond desperation. And Jesus saved him. In that moment, he says, I'm I'm with you. And much maybe to his surprise, Jesus says, no. Now go. Present yourself. Tell your friends. Tell your family how much the Lord has done for you how he's shown mercy on you. We're going to come back to that at the very end. And so he does it. He's obedient. He goes. He proclaims what Jesus has done, and everyone marvels. Uh, I will make this brief aside. Um, A lot of us, and maybe some of you especially, um, 
because of the culture that we grew up in, and, you know, I grew up in a Christian sort of context, and there was a lot of time for sharing testimonies, and it was kind of this great thing to be able to get people in to share their testimony, and their testimony was something to the effect of, like, when I was 12, I started selling drugs, you know, and I killed a man and went to jail. When I was in jail, I beat up everybody in jail, you know, and then one day um, someone came, and I, I realized that Jesus was Lord, and immediately I was not addicted to drugs. I was not addicted to alcohol. I was no longer violent. I, I turned around, and, and, and we said, look at what God has done. And let me just say, look at what God has done. Those testimonies, those stories are amazing. But what happened to people like me and maybe some of you is you get testimony envy, right? Like, oh, man, I I was, I was saved when I was seven. <laughs> um, I always went to church. I've not shot anyone. Uh, you know, and you feel like, well, my testimony, hear, you hear it all the time. I just don't really have a good testimony. Right? Um, but here's the thing is you, you were spiritually oppressed just like that man. Maybe not to the same extent you weren't possessed, but you were oppressed. Uh, Calvin, in his commentary, says that each one of us are oppressed by the forces of Satan, just like this man, out of our right mind, naked and hurting ourselves until Jesus comes. And so uh, there was a pastor at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church in in Minnesota, Minneapolis, who said um, his story was great because God saved him from a life of drugs, and immorality when he was six. Think about that. That's incredible. It's incredible that God saves us. No matter how he does it, you were, you were possessed like this man, and he saves you. And so now here, here's the thing is he sends him off to tell him what the Lord has done, and people marvel. Why do you think they're marveling? Because they remember they see him. There is physical, tangible reality that they can see to match the proclamation that he's made. And, and all of us who are in Christ have that, right? So you get to share what God has done for you while demonstrating through your life, through your obedience faithfulness what God has done for you and so anyway we we come to the end of the story and, and the great point is about Jesus and it's this that Jesus Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm and so then Jesus keeps going and when he and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side we're in verse 21 now a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly my little daughter is at the point of death come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live and he went with him And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. 
and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I, ev- if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the, the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? That translation, Okay, Jesus. <laughs> and he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. She said, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All right, so let's look at these last two stories. Mark does hear what he does several times. Um, One way you could talk about it is like story sandwiching. Um, And so uh, he tells one story, but then right in the middle of that story without resolving it, he tells another story, and then he resolves the story he began with. And so a lot of times, if you think about sandwiches, We identify sandwiches not by what's on the outside. Sandwiches are delicious. I know it's close to lunchtime. Bear with me. Not by what's on the outside, but what's on the inside, right? And so uh, if it's a ham sandwich, it's because ham is in between the bread. Or if it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you get the point. This is how we identify sandwiches. And, And sometimes we tend to think of it that way, even if the bread is overwhelming, right? So if you've got, I don't know, pumpernickel. And it's ham, like, I think it's important if you're telling someone to say it's this type of bread because otherwise you're going to be in for a surprise, right? Because all I'm focusing on is the ham, right, or the peanut butter. Uh, And sometimes with these stories, and even with this story, uh, we, we tend to sort of identify the story by what's in the middle. But all three of these things, uh, all three parts of this story tell us something very important about, about the whole. Um, and the first is something that has been said multiple times through the course of this. Um, Jesus crosses the side the, the, to the other side again. Apparently word has 
gotten out. It has been out. But still, Jesus is coming back. He's done more incredible things. He's greeted by a crowd. And if you remember, crowds oftentimes become this obstacle to people of faith getting to Jesus. And so Jairus has to navigate the crowd to find Jesus. Jairus is a a ruler. He's a leader. He's a respected man. Uh, He was, in some ways, uh, he wouldn't have been a priest or a teacher, but he would have sort of been the president, if you will, of the synagogue. Uh, And so, in other words, he would uh, coordinate events, he would fund things, he kind of just gave oversight to it while not teaching, but either way, that means people would have known who he was, he was a respected man, he knew about Jesus, he knew about the situation with his daughter, and he quickly went to see Jesus. The crowds he has to navigate through, well again, crowds come up in this middle story, because now everyone, I, I, in, in, in talking to uh, one of the pastors at, at the church in Arlington that uh, we're looking at uh, working with for a while before we plant NDC, um, one of the things that he kept saying was that uh, they didn't have to do much to tell people that were, they were there because uh, word in DC gets out fast. Word spreads quickly in DC. Um, grassroots word of mouth is a very effective tool because of how quickly information just seems to go around, um, which makes sense. I mean, it's a city where gossip and reporting are two sort of fundamental attributes, right? And so um, it seems it's the same way here. So word gets out. Jairus' daughter is sick. Jesus is going to heal her. Come see, come see. And so people are stopping. This crowd is growing and growing. And this woman has to navigate her way through the crowd. And she realizes, I can't stop Jesus. So maybe if I just touch his robe, the hem of his robe, I'll be healed. But they have to work their way through the crowds. And there are the crowds. There are the crowds who just want to see a show. And then there are people who in faith want Jesus. You do have to take pause for a second and ask yourself, which am I? Do I just want to see the show? It's like uh, The Incredibles, right? That little kid who's just staring at Mr. Incredible, and he's like, what are you looking at? What do you want? And he's like, something amazing, I guess. You know, it's, it's like that. Like, we're just sitting there waiting for something incredible to happen. Are you there because the music is great? Are you there because... The teaching may be compelling, and uh, talking about Brad particularly. Um, but Or are you here to meet Jesus? Do you go to home groups because you need some social interaction? Or are you there to meet Jesus? So these people want Jesus. They're desperate for Jesus. Look at how they're similar. And then we're going to look at Jesus because this is what it's about. They're similar in, in so many interesting ways. Um, first of all, Jairus, his daughter's sick. He's terrified for her. He's got money. He's got prominence. So it's, it's very presumable that not only is his little daughter at the point of death, but they've spent every other option that they have. The man with the possession, 
the demon possession. He was desperate. Every course of action that might help him had been spent. The disciples in the boat were desperate. They knew what to do in a storm. And even the things that you're supposed to do, they weren't working. This is death. This is death. They exhausted every option. This woman with the internal bleeding. She'd seen every doctor. Apparently, all the tests that they did were very painful. She endured the pain. She gave all the money that she had. Listen, at this point, you can be sure that she's been praying, God, take this from me. She's been in the synagogue. Anoint me. Pray that I might be healed. She's been to the physicians. All of her options have been spent. I think it's very interesting. She's had this for 12 years. And if you recall towards the end of the story, Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. So that means that at some point in the same year, Jairus got this wonderful news. He had a daughter. This woman found out that she had an illness that would plague her. She prayed for 12 years. And, and it doesn't tell us how long Jairus' daughter was sick. It might not have been 12 years. Who knows how long it was? Some of you are, are dealing with things that I can't even imagine. I mean, we, we know it. We're a family. We pray for each other. We've been praying for some of you for so long. And every course of action has been explored. You're waiting on Jesus. Some of you, new stuff has popped up. I have a friend, uh, my one of my probably my closest friend growing up uh, who's just found out that her 20-year-old brother, um, he plays baseball for university. He had to do a random drug test, and they found through the test, through the results of the test, that he had some very unusually high levels of very bad things, and they determined that it's cancer at 20. And I just found this out a week ago, two weeks ago. It's varying levels or varying degrees of time, but desperation. And certainly this woman is thinking, where is God? Where, where is he? And they hear about Jesus and they run to Jesus. And now look at the varying things that happen. All right, so here's this woman. She's been sick for 12 years. She goes to Jesus. She's healed after 12 years of sickness. Here's this girl. She hasn't been sick for 12 years. She's only been alive for 12 years. But she's so sick that by the time Jesus gets here, the time that, that Jesus spent addressing who is it who touched me and finding this woman in that time, he could have gone there, but he doesn't, and she dies. She's dead. 
This man has been possessed for how long? So long that he's been exiled and he's in tombs living with the dead. The disciples are in the boat for a matter of minutes, maybe just minutes. And and all of a sudden this storm comes upon them and they're terrified. They're desperate. And here's the thing, is that the same thing that, that each of them need is the same thing we need. It's for Jesus to come, to act, to give us faith, to bring us peace and restoration. So, they're in all of these different places and Jesus still moves. And this is the point. This is why it's sandwiched in this story, is that Jesus heals this woman. The woman doesn't come to her in fear of death like the disciples woke Jesus up. The woman doesn't run to her out of her mind, possessed like the the demoniac. The woman doesn't even fall at her feet before Jesus and say, help me. Like Jairus, she just touches his robe. No words. Power transferred. Jesus feels it. How that works, what that's like, I don't know. I kind of imagine it like, <laughs> and, and I imagine it this way because of something that D.A. Carson said. Is, is just imagine a man who's in his basement and he's working out and, and he's lifting weights and he's got a level of weights that he can just easily lift and he begins bench pressing, right? And he's lifting and he's closed his eyes to concentrate and he's breathing and he's bench pressing and then his little child comes and walks into the basement and grabs onto the bar and all of a sudden he can still do it easily but he senses even without seeing that power has been changed, the, the need, the level of power that he has to use has been changed. Power is going out from him that wasn't going out before, and so he looks over and he sees the child and just keeps on lifting. He senses the power has gone out. He's not mad. He wants to see her. To love her. Your faith has made you well. Go. This power has been released from Jesus, and what does it do? It immediately heals her. It restores her health and her life. Jesus has power over life. He's Lord over life. He has authority over life and all that it entails, health and and prosperity and life. Jesus is Lord over that. And while he's being Lord over that, Jairus' daughter dies. And so they go, and the people are like, don't worry, she's died. There's nothing you can do. And I don't want to get into the, oh, she's asleep. You know, you can talk about that in home group if, you, if you'd like. Um, but the point is, Jesus, Jesus knows that what he's about to do, and so even though she is dead, it's, it might as well be that she's asleep. And he goes in to the room. He holds her hand. This is so great. Talitha kumi. He speaks soft words in Aramaic to her. Just the gentleness of Jesus. He touches her. Sweet child. 
sweet child, get up. But she does. She does. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows, yeah, I'm Lord of life, but I'm Lord even over death. I have power over death. Right? Do, you, do you hear that? And so now for you, you're finding yourselves in these various places, and it may be that you die where you are. But look, Jesus has power over death. Jesus can heal you. He has power over life. You may be oppressed. You may be depressed. You may be in a place of just great anxiety and angst because of this spiritual oppression that is on you. Well, Jesus has power over the spiritual. And as we sit, and and we should not forget our brothers and sisters around the world. We should not forget both our brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in, in humanity in the Philippines. And all these people who are witnessing the power of nature and be reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord even over that. So hear this then. In order, Jesus has power over nature, the natural. Jesus has power over the spiritual, the supernatural. Jesus has power over life. Jesus has power over death. What else is there? Nothing. There is no facet of this life, of this universe, of all creation that Jesus does not rightly place his hand on and say, I am Lord over this. And you should be comforted in that. And you should find extra comfort in the way that he does it. Because look at these last two stories. He touches a dead girl. Dead people are unclean. And in order to restore her back to life, he makes himself unclean. And he's touched by a woman with bleeding. She's unclean. And he becomes unclean so that she might be restored. And people with demons are unclean. Jesus is constantly making himself unclean so that those of us who are unclean can become clean. This is the gospel that he who knew no sin became sin so that we who were sin might become the righteousness of God. He became your sin. He became your brokenness. He took on your sorrow and your grief. And God raised him from the dead so that we who trust in him may have all these things in, in two ways. Right now, in a manner of speaking. And so let me say this, that spiritually, You have been oppressed spiritually. There is chaos spiritually. You are sick and you are dead. And by the miraculous work of God, you have been raised. If you are in Christ, you are not dead. You are not sick. You are not oppressed. You are not in chaos. You have been brought into life, love, order, peace, wholeness, shalom. And at the same time, Jesus is healing people all the time. In a very literal sense. And so we have that already, but also not yet. We now can await eagerly the day when there are no more hurricanes or typhoons, depending on where it is, right? Where there are no more massive earthquakes, right? We await the day where there are no more people who are oppressed and possessed by the demonic, 
We wait a day when there is no more sickness. We wait a day when death dies. Once and for all, where the dead are raised, and where there is only life evermore, we have this in Jesus because of his love, because of his getting dirty, incarnating, living the life you should have, dying the death you deserve, being risen again in power. Where And now, right, this is what Paul says in Philippians, and so now he has the name above every name. He's Lord over everything. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and you can participate in that now. And when that happens, a few things will happen. How do you know that you're participating in that now? I'm just going to give you a, a few things. Number one, you want Jesus, right? Like this man who's demon possessed, he wants Jesus. That's all he wants. Let me go with you. Let me, just let me go with you. Number two, you are amazed are filled with fear and trembling at what the Lord has done. Even in the midst of trial when you need him to move, even in the midst of a storm, you're still amazed at what the Lord has done. No Christian should just sort of be blasé about the fact that Jesus saved you, right? If you're just like, of course I'm a Christian, then you don't get it. You don't get what's happened. You were dead. He performed the miracle of regeneration in your life and made you alive. You are in amazement, fear and trembling at this God who saves sinners. And finally, number three, you obey and you proclaim. So two partners. Right? And so remember we said that before. Look, if this is true, if the things that they're saying are true, if Jesus is who he says he is, then the only reasonable response, along with wanting him, being amazed by him, that the tangible one is just obeying him, living under his lordship. He's lord of everything. That means you. And so now you get to live under his lordship. You have the blessing of obeying Jesus and naturally you will be proclaiming his excellencies to the ends of the earth, to everyone you meet. I was oppressed, but now I'm free. I was dead, but now I'm alive because of the goodness of Jesus who was, who is, who is to come, who loves, who has compassion and mercy on those, even those who hate him, even you. Filled with love and wonder at this great and glorious Jesus, who is Lord of all things. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that not only did Jesus do these things, but the faithful eyewitnesses reported it and that faithful men recorded it so that now, 2,000 years later, we can read about the goodness of Jesus. We can be amazed. We can be full of fear and wonder at this God who has power over the natural, over the supernatural, over life and over death, over everything. And so I pray that we would be people filled with the spirit of that Jesus and who go in obedience 
and who go proclaiming happily the good news of what Jesus has done for us so that others may meet him, may be filled with wonder, and may worship him as well. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Sean, and uh, praise the Lord for that knowledge. As we uh, get ready to, to uh, conclude our service, uh, a couple of reminders and uh, recognitions. One is, again, uh, as the Lord leads, it's an opportunity for us to recognize uh, Brad and how the Lord has used him in our lives in so many ways um, through his time, through his sacrifice, through his uh, through uh, teaching and counseling. Um, so we'll have a plate outside the lobby on the uh, island there just outside the doors for you to contribute towards towards giving back and, and showing him our love with a renovated office. Uh, secondarily, tomorrow, uh, November 11th, marks a special day in our, in our country. It's a day that uh, was originally known as Armistice Day and in 1954 was, was renamed uh, Veterans Day in honor of the veterans who fought and gave their lives in World War I, and now we recognize it as uh, a day to recognize all those who served our country. And so uh, if you are someone who served uh, the Lord used to bring and to uh, continue with our freedoms, if you would stand so we could recognize you today. And if we could all please stand uh, for our benediction and, and uh, share a word of blessing. And along the lines of remembering uh, God's authority over all things, I'm reading from Psalm 139. O Lord, you search me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and know my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So as you leave here, may the Lord bless you and remind you that he is in control of all things. And as the potter molds the clay, he is actively molding you into the people he wants you to be. So go with that peace and knowledge. And all God people said, amen.